Hey everybody, welcome to the Active Churches Podcast. We hope you are inspired by today's message from one of our teaching pastors here at Active Churches. We are online and we are also in person, so we'd love to have you gather with us 9 a.m. and 1045 here at our Ukaipa location or online on YouTube or Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's dive into our message.
This last year has really been a learning year for me. Perhaps it's been a learning year for you. Uh, I've learned a lot about myself and about human behavior. One of the things I've learned is that there's a big difference between what I want and what I need. Like what I want is my favorite baseball team to actually win some significant games. And what I need, or at least what my wife tells me, is that I need to calm down, right? And speaking of my wife, what I want is a healthy and holy relationship with her. What I need is to serve her humbly. What I want is a lot of resource to take care of my family. But what I need is to be a good steward with what I have, be generous with what God has given me. There's a big difference between what I want and what I need. I've also learned that we all agree with what we want, right? You could say to me, hey, here's what I want, and I would say, great. And I could tell you what I want, and you would say, awesome. But we actually, we actually disagree on what we need. It, it makes things complicated. It can make things difficult. And we're in the series called What the World Needs Now. And we've been talking the last few weeks about what the world needs right now. And if you're joining us for the first time, my name is Mike and I serve on the team here at Active. What a privilege it is to have you watching or listening. But when we talk about this idea of what the world needs now, we've looked at our culture, we've looked at our communities, we've looked at our people, the people around us, and we've seen the brokenness, we've seen the gaps. And we've decided that we're not gonna come up with a solution because we'll disagree on what we need. We've decided to look to a greater wisdom, the wisdom that's found in the story of God, the words of God called the scriptures, called the Bible. And we believe that it's in the story of God through the words of God found in the person and work of Jesus that we'll discover what the world needs now. And friends, what the world needs now is gentleness. It feels like we've lost the ability to be gentle. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have taken a break from social media recently? I can name five friends right now that are completely off of social media because they're tired of the negativity. They're tired of the divisiveness. They're tired of the anger. They're tired of the lies. It feels like we have lost the ability to address what's wrong in our world without attacking the people in our world, right? This is why the world needs more gentleness. It feels like we've grown mean, we've lost empathy, and truthfully, we're losing some good influence. I'm reading a book right now called The Home That We Build by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And in it, he says that the society that we're in is built on three pillars, an economic pillar, a political pillar, and a morality pillar. And he says on the economic pillar, what we do is we'll pay people to get them to do what we want so eventually they get what they need. In the political pillar, we'll actually overpower people to get them to do what we want so that they get what they need. And then he brings up the third pillar, which is the morality pillar, and he says this pillar is very different than the first two. This pillar actually prioritizes we over me. And it's interesting because he's a rabbi. Jonathan Sachs is a rabbi, the author of this book. And so he's, he's a Jewish man. He believes in God. He's not sure about Jesus, but he believes in God. And the Jewish people actually were very communal. And so this idea of we over me is not foreign to him. He actually writes in his book that whenever the Jewish people would approach God, they wouldn't approach God personally. They would approach God in a community and they would ask the question like, God, what, what can we do so that we can honor you? What can we do to seek forgiveness from you? What can we do to live in repentance? And he actually says that the best way forward in our world is to prioritize we over me. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what the kingdom of God is all about. Jesus came and said, we actually look to others. This is how we love God, by loving others. 
And you and I, as we follow Jesus, the best question for us to ask is this, as we look at our world. Hey, what's, what's good for us? Not just for me. And when we ignore we over me, bad things happen. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan actually writes in his book, long before 2021, by the way, he writes in his book, when we don't prioritize we over me, when we prioritize me over we, he says, here's what will happen. The market, stock market will be merciless. Politics will be deceiving, divisive, confrontational, extreme. People will feel anxious, uncertain, fearful, aggressive, unstable, unrooted, unloved. They will focus on promoting themselves instead of the one thing that will give them lasting happiness, making life better for others. <laughs> question, does any of that sound familiar? Here's a more personal question. Does that sound familiar when you think about your life? Like, do you prioritize me over we, or does the group of people, do others come before your needs? The truth is, is that what the world needs now is gentleness. And you and I, we get to lead the way. We're the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, telling the story of God to the world that God loves. And what the world needs right now are people focused on mending our fractured world and being present and being less combative and, and being more gentle. This is what Jesus modeled for us because this is who Jesus is. God in the flesh, he came and showed us the best way forward. It's why we believe that better stories are possible. So what I wanna do in our next few minutes is I wanna define gentleness, but not just give you a definition and then try to figure out what that means for us. I actually wanna define it in a really interesting way. What I wanna do is I wanna ask three questions. And then I wanna share three stories that will give the answers to those three questions. And then together, you and I will explore what it means to live gently in our world. And so I wanna get started by turning to the letter that Matthew writes in the scriptures. And so if you have a Bible or the Bible app, would you turn to Matthew chapter 10? We'll start in verse one. And as you're turning there, can I just speak to the men for a moment, specifically the dads, the fathers, the father figures? I know that gentleness isn't attractive to us. In fact, I think that a lot of us believe that gentleness is actually a sign of weakness. Because when we protect our families and those that we love, we like to, we like to man up, we like to show our strength, right? We like to get aggressive in those moments. But here's what I've learned. Being a dad, being a girl dad, being a dad of a, a young man, I've learned that my aggressiveness actually doesn't protect my family at all. It scares them. And what actually helps them to tell better stories and actually find and follow Jesus is, is my gentleness. It creates a space of grace. And so dads, I wanna invite you in the next few minutes to get rid of how you would de define gentleness as weakness and actually start to see it as the most courageous thing that you could do. So I'm gonna ask three questions. I'm gonna give three answers through three stories in the scriptures and then we'll explore what gentleness looks like for you and for me. So first question. Where is hope found? Where do you place your hope? Who holds your hope in their hands? Matthew actually addresses this in a unique way in Matthew chapter 10. Starting in verse one, he writes some detail and he says that Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. Now there's a lot in that first sentence that we don't have time to dive into, maybe one day, but don't get caught up in it, but there's a lot of good stuff there. But look at what happens in verse two. 
Matthew says these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, talking about himself, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would eventually betray him. Now, Matthew does something really interesting in this story, but in order to point it out to you, I got to... I gotta talk politics for just a minute. And I know some of you are like, no, 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 Mike, don't do that, right? Like politics and religion, they don't mix, right? Actually, this is gonna be helpful. And I get that this conversation can be a bit unsettling, but if you would for the next maybe one or two minutes, if I could just ask you to trust me, because there's something that Matthew wants us to see in this story. Matthew, as he's giving us the list of names, he, he actually gives us two disciples and gives us a description of who they are and what they do. He doesn't do it for anybody else, but he gives us a description of two disciples. One is Matthew himself, and the other is Simon. He says, Matthew, me, is, I'm, I'm, I'm a tax collector, which means that he is a Jewish man who is friendly with the Roman government. And then he says, Simon the Zealot is also a disciple, which means that he actually is not friendly with the Roman government. He actually wants to antagonize and burn down the Roman government. And he didn't like any Jewish men or women that worked for the Roman government. And Matthew says that both of them, Matthew and Simon, are on the same team. And they're in the same room. And the question that maybe you have, that I have, is so if they had such different opinions, how in the world could they get along? And maybe even a deeper question is, why would Jesus put them on the same team and in the same room? And the truth is, is this, that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that things can change for you and for those that are around you. This speaks very loud to the people that Jesus has invited to find and follow him into the kingdom of God. It's, it's for everyone. And what Matthew did and what Simon did is they didn't prioritize their ideology, their political standing. They actually prioritized Jesus because they believe that it's in Jesus that they can find hope. That's where hope is found. Not in their politics or in their politician, but that's where hope is found. And could I, could I just say something that might be a bit uncomfortable for you if you're not already uncomfortable? Have you ever listened to how we talk about our political party or our politicians? Like we put expectations on them that they will never fulfill. Like we expect from them what God and only God can give us. We believe that they are the hope of the world. If our party gets in or our president gets in, then everything will be different for us. But the reality is, is that's not true, is it? In fact, not just because I said it, but history actually teaches us that. Do you know that since 1933, we've had seven Republican presidents and seven Democratic presidents? Here's my question to you. Which one solved all of our problems for us? Now, you might say, well, I have a few favorite presidents and I have a few unfavorable presidents, but none of them solved all of our problems, right? And none of them were the hope of the world. When the scriptures talk about those that we elect, the scriptures say that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we can pray for them. We lay the story of that person at the hands and feet of Jesus and ask God to give them wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it. But they will never be the hope for our world or the world. 
And what Matthew wants us to understand is that he and Simon decided to prioritize the person and work of Jesus, the way of Jesus, over every political standing, every ideological standing that they held. Because they believed, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, God in spirit in them. They believed that they could get along and be on the same team and be in the same room. Because their hope wasn't in a person, wasn't in a politician, wasn't in a leader. Their hope was in the Son of God. And that allowed them to be gentle with others. So where is hope found? It's found in Jesus. And when our hope is found in Jesus, it allows us to be gentle. Second question, who inherits the earth? Like, like who gets all of this? Who gets to be influencers and who gets to be leaders and who actually changes things on earth? Jesus talked about this in what's called the most famous sermon of all time. Matthew chapter five is where it's recorded. Again, Matthew is writing this stuff down and Jesus gives what's called the Sermon on the Mount and he starts with a few blessings. He says, here's, here's what God is like and here's what the people of God are like and God is with people like this and God is for people like that and God loves when you do this. And then he gets to verse five and he says, blessed or blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Meek is another form of gentleness, and meek is not weak. Meek actually is strong, and it represents who Jesus was physically and spiritually. He wasn't weak physically and spiritually. He was actually gentle and patient and compassionate. In fact, the most gentle moments in life require the most incredible courage, don't they? Like Jesus spent time with those who were sick when nobody wanted to be around them, and he healed them. Jesus spent time with those that were labeled sinners. He had a meal together, often with them. Nobody wanted to hang out with them. Jesus actually spent time with religious leaders and confronted them when everybody else was so frustrated with them. But yet he was gentle, and he was honest, and he led the way. And Jesus changed the world, didn't he? Through his person and and through his work. It's funny because the disciples, the disciples watched Jesus work, and he was the son of a, of a carpenter. So he may have had calloused hands, but Jesus didn't have a calloused heart. He was gentle. And these disciples had been taught for, for years from mom and dad and from grandpa and grandma that when the Messiah would come, he was going to take the throne and dominate whatever superpower was in charge. And these disciples, Peter included, believed that that's why Jesus came. They saw all of these great things he did, but in the corner of their mind, they thought maybe perhaps he is about to rise up and dominate Rome because we're going to get our vengeance, we're going to get revenge, and God is going to take control. And so when Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross, before he's crucified, before he resurrects from the grave three days later. There's this moment where they're praying, these soldiers come up to arrest him, and Jesus is is there, and Matthew records that as they get close and they go to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword, and Matthew tells us that he struck the servant of the high priest, and he cut off his ear. And then Jesus speaks up, and he says, Peter, put your sword back in its place. While he grabs, this is a big graphic, but while he grabs the high priest's son's ear and places it back on his head and heals him, he says to Peter, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. It's a, it's a 
significant moment because he's teaching Peter and all of his first followers, all of those first Christians, that the kingdom of God is very different than any other kingdom that you have experienced or even anticipated. That I am not here to seek out revenge. I'm here to bring restoration. And even after the death and resurrection of Jesus, things actually got worse for the Christians. Rome got mad and offended that the Christians actually worshiped Jesus and not the Caesar. One Caesar actually blamed the Christians for burning down an entire town when he actually was the cause of it. The disciples, man, they inherited the promise of heaven through the person and work of Jesus, through their faith in Jesus, and yet were living in a reality of hell on earth. And so when Peter finally, after years of this taking place, when Peter finally writes a letter to the Christians, they actually thought that maybe he was starting to get it. That maybe he was starting to understand that they needed to fight and go to war and to stand up. Because in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Peter writes this letter and he begins with these words, Arm yourselves! And everybody who read it probably thought, finally, Peter, we're going to go to battle. And he says, can I, can I finish? He says, arm yourselves with the attitude, the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Like, like choose gentleness. Choose compassion. Because that's the most courageous way forward. And you see the impact throughout history in pockets of Christianity and how they changed the world. A man named Justin Martyr, who was a second century pagan, he was born in Rome, had many faiths and many philosophies, and he was really struggling with who he was and why he existed until he met Jesus. And he writes this, that we, we used to hate and destroy one another. We refused to associate with people of a different race or country, but now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies because they chose the attitude of Christ. That's how they armed themselves. Tertullian was the son of a Roman centurion. He was a trial lawyer and he converted to Christianity and he writes this. He says, what marks us in the eyes of our enemies is our practice of loving kindness. They say only look, look at how they love one another. Not long after that, in the late second century, there was this epidemic that hit Rome. We know exactly what that feels like, right? It hit Rome and 5,000 people were getting sick and dying every day. And so the people bailed. Almost everybody left, except for, get this, the Christians. The Christians were taking care of those who were sick that were Christians, but they also were taking care of those who were sick that were considered in history pagans or not believers in Jesus. And they loved them and they cared for them. And here's what history teaches about that moment. One historian writes that most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy because they chose the attitude of Christ. And then one more really significant moment in the fourth century, the Roman government was like, well, if you can't beat the Christians, let's join the Christians. And so they created welfare programs to help support people who were poor and hungry. They began to try to serve people the way the Christians were serving people, but the people saw right through it because the government was doing it to try to gain influence, but the Christians were doing it because they were choosing the attitude of Christ. And Emperor Julian actually writes in the fourth century that these Galileans, these Christians, not only feed their own poor, but also ours, welcoming them into their feasts. And I love this last line. Attracting them as children are attracted with cakes. 
Like we can feel the impact of Jesus and the first church in our world today because of what they did. Like even in small ways, we name our kids biblical names, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Deborah, right? We name our kids those names and we name our dogs Caesar, right? We use Roman names to name our animals, but we use biblical names to name our kids. We can feel the impact of these Christians and the movement of Jesus. Like these people didn't outlast the Romans. These Christians actively outlove them. Remember that when somebody says, we gotta stand up and fight and get angry and get aggressive. Gentleness doesn't passively outlast those against you. Gentleness actively outloves those against you. So who inherits the earth? Who gets influence? Who are the leaders? Who changes the world? The gentle do. Because they don't just outlast, they outlove. And the third question, who needs to change? Like when you look at the problems in our world, who needs to change? And I'm sure that you have a lot of answers just like I do. And we can say, I know who needs to change. They need to change. This situation needs to change. That political party needs to change. That city or that country needs to change. We have a lot of answers to that question, don't we? But is it appropriate? Like what would, what would Jesus and those first followers do? When you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're choosing gentleness, what, what would they do? There's this moment before Jesus goes to the cross where he's celebrating the Passover meal, the meal that celebrates God rescuing the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt and bringing them to freedom. And Jesus is celebrating that moment with his first disciples, but he changes the elements and the meaning midway through the meal. And he begins to point to what he's going to do on the cross and through the resurrection, that forgiveness of sin is coming and that freedom from brokenness, freedom from sin is available in Jesus. And then he washes the disciples' feet, very unrabbi of him, but he serves them humbly. And then Matthew, Matthew actually records Jesus saying this to all of the men that are sitting around the table. He says, truly, I tell you that one of you is going to betray me. It's interesting because Jesus doesn't actually name who it is. And all of the disciples hear this and they do something really interesting as well. They don't throw anybody under the bus. Like 11 of the 12 men that were sitting around that table knew that they hadn't sold out Jesus. But their first question wasn't, well, who is it? Like, is it, is it Matthew? Is it Andrew? It's probably, it's probably one of them. Their first question is actually a very personal question. They asked Jesus and of each other. They said, Jesus, is it me? Because they knew their capacity to sin. And they knew their capacity to actually violate what Jesus wanted to do in their lives and through their lives. And so they didn't point out the other people and say, oh, it's got to be Judas. We know it's Judas. It's got to be John. He's, he's, he's way too much of a jerk. Like, they actually asked the question, is it me? They assumed that maybe they had a part to play in the problem. My question for you is, what do you do when there's a problem? Do you start with you? Or, or do you point out them? Like you make all sorts of accusations, you assume that, that they're, they're the issue and if we just got rid of them, then, then everything would be great. The reality is, is that we often treat those around us as problems rather than people. And I think what, what these first disciples have taught us in this moment, this innocent moment of asking them, themselves, is it me, Jesus, is it me? What they've taught us is what gentleness look, looks like when there's problems in this world. They actually said, well, well what part have I played 
first. What have I What have I done? What can I own? What's my slice of the pie? And maybe it's just a small slice, but these men and these women, they decided long ago because they wanted to arm themselves with the attitude of Christ, they decided long ago when there's problems, they're first gonna go, okay, what part or what role have I played in this? And that is so significant because I I believe that when we own what we can own, It allows us to be gentle with the people around us, and it helps us to not treat people as problems, but actually as humans. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. He doesn't treat us as our sin deserves. In fact, one writer says in Romans that God condemns sin in sinful man. Like he doesn't condemn you and he doesn't condemn me. He condemns sin and removes it from us and pays the penalty for us. And maybe these first disciples, as they watched Jesus, that's where they learned it. They're like, maybe, maybe I have a part to play in this problem. I think maybe before we talk about what you've done, could we start with me? Could I go first? And so because they did that during that time, I'd love to do that in our time. I actually would love to go first and just confess and repent to you the ways that I think I've contributed to the problems that we've experienced in just the last year. And so if, if you don't mind, I'd love to just share a couple of things that I, that I wrote down. So, so could, I, could I just repent of assuming that, that I'm always right between you and me? I, I think that my way is always the best way. I don't know if you feel the same way about your way. I, I feel like my way is always the best way. But I'm, I'm understanding that, that God has surrounded me with some brilliant, intelligent, smart leaders, great pastors, great friends, great Christians who have armed themselves with the attitude of Christ. And there are some things that they have to say and there are some things that they want to do that actually are better than what I say and what I do. So could I just, could I just repent of thinking that I'm always right? Could I, could I repent of, of being quick to judge? And what I mean by that is, is it's... When I judge, I, I'm, I'm thinking I know what you mean by what you say immediately. Like, I'm, I'm not listening to understand. I'm listening to respond. I, I do that often. And I think that that actually doesn't help. I think it actually hurts. I think I actually contribute to the problem in our world. And I really don't want to be unthoughtful. So I, could I just, could I repent of that? And I repent of being dismissive of your story and the role that it plays in your life. I get that there's more going on in your story. And guess what? I wanna spend more time getting face-to-face with people rather than just assuming that I know what's going on. And could I repent of being caught up in the drama? Anybody, anybody get caught up in the drama? Like, I can get so caught up in the drama, not just, not just in my home, but I can get caught up in the drama on social media. I can see a post and immediately get upset and offended because they posted that without actually thinking that maybe perhaps there's something going on at a deeper level and this is their way of coping. Uh, recently, I had a friend who posted something on social media and I would say that it was offensive to a lot of people because they didn't like what they posted and people commented and shared their opinion and then, then there was this third mutual friend that commented and said, maybe they posted this because this is their way of coping and they're not sure how to cope and so they needed to get the anxiety out of them and so they posted this just so that they didn't have to walk around with this in their heart. And I went, Maybe you're right. (laughs) 
Maybe that's what the attitude of Christ looks like instead of going, ah, I can't believe you posted that or said that. Maybe it's asking the question like, why? Like, maybe they're having a bad day or maybe they need to get it out of them. And could I repent of, of placing my hope where it doesn't belong? I get it. I'm like you. I look at politics. I look at politicians and I, I think that maybe if we vote them in, things will be better. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. But I know that my hope doesn't belong in anybody else's hands but Jesus. And could I, could I repent of underestimating what God can actually do? You know what God does in my life? He always brings me to the edge and then says, do you, do you still trust me? <laughs> because often what I'll do is not trust him in the moments where things are comfortable. And so God opens my eyes to my desire, my need for him. And so I just repent of underestimating what God can do. Friends, I want to be, I want to be somebody that's filled with the Spirit of God that tells the story of God to the world that God loves. And, and I want to be somebody that chooses gentleness. So quick recap. Instead of defining gentleness, we, we ask some questions. And the first question is, where, where is hope found? And if we're going to be gentle, we need to place our hope in the hands of Jesus and not in the hands of politicians or people or leaders that we see around us because they can't give us what God can give us. Second question. Who inherits the earth? Like, who gets to be leaders? Who gets to have influence? Jesus said, the meek do, the gentle do. And what they do is not outlast people, they outlove people. It's like a love competition. They set the standard, and love always is the greatest healer, and love always wins when it's the love of Jesus in you and overflowing outside of you, and that helps us to be gentle. And then the last question, who needs to change? And the answer is, a lot of people, right? But I'll go first. Would you? What the world needs now is gentleness. And I want to be someone who is gentle with you. And I'm believing that you want to be someone who is gentle with me and with the world that God loves. So let's ask God to do that in us and to do that through us. Could I pray for you? Heavenly Father, it's, it's because of you that we can bring to the world what it needs right now. I have nothing. I have no strength and I have no courage and I have no wisdom and I have no character and I have no integrity without you. You have changed my life and you have changed the lives of those watching or listening. Some, you, you've changed them and you continue to change them because they followed you and some, they're brand new to this. But God, you're changing and transforming and renewing. And we want to see that, not just in our worlds, but in our world. So God, could, could you hear our cry from the depths of our soul, that you would forgive us and set us free and help us to be what the world needs right now. And we pray all these things because of Jesus and in the name of Jesus. And together we say amen and amen and amen. Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you were inspired. We hope you were encouraged by today's message. Hey, I want to ask you to do two things. First thing, hit that subscribe button to stay connected to the Active Churches podcast. The second thing I want to invite you to do is go onto your social media accounts, Instagram and Facebook, and go to at Active Churches. Stay connected to the community because together we can tell a better story.